Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Live from Las Vegas, it's time for you to be Talking Movies with America's most award-winning film critic, John Barber. You're being, John, you're being so gentle. I've heard you give reviews and you're so rough, you're saying. <laughs> How would you have evaluated your own work uh, in some of the films that you did prior to, uh, <laughs> prior to The Longest Shot? I mean, Much like... better than you, my friend. <laughs> Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Hi there, this is John Barber, and thank you for watching Talking Movies, especially this edition. This is the second edition of Talking Movies about all the films made about the murder of John Kennedy. And we're talking with Donald Jeffries and Len Osanik, two absolute and total experts. You saw in the previous episode a wonderful clip of Lee Harvey Oswald very calmly saying that when a reporter yelled out at him, did you kill the president? And he said, no, this is the very first time I ever heard this. Well, this is to show you how smart Jim Garrison is. Because in my interview with him, he said to me, he said, you know, Johnny, just emerged from supposedly an eight-hour interrogation in Chief Curry's office. And Jim Garrison found one of the detectives that was in that office and that detective told Garrison there was no interrogation because any time someone asked Oswald if he either shot Tippett or the president, he was interrupted by a blue suit. So it was obvious they did not want the truth from Lee Harvey Oswald. And then when we left off last week, we saw that uh, Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather and CBS were totally incapable of totally destroying the reputation and case of Jim Garrison for the public. So to try to further destroy them, they hired their Don Rickles of reporters, Mike Wallace, to go down to New Orleans with the assignment to totally destroy, finally, Jim Garrison. Sadly for Mike, it turned out to be the other way around. Okay, tell folks who Mike Wallace was. Well, Mike Wallace was supposed to be uh, the, the epitome. He didn't die until, I don't know, he would be pretty old. I mean, so he probably died maybe five, ten years ago. But he, Chris Wallace is his son, he's the reporter now. But he was he was considered a tenacious interviewer, and he would go for the throat and everything. And uh, you didn't want to be interviewed by Mike Wallace. But, you know, he, as, as on this subject, like all, all the other journalists, he, he followed uh, the party line. Well, there you go, because you see, you know that because there was a little bit of a free press 
when you were around then. I knew all of the free press at the time, but if you're 30 years of age right now in the United States, you've never experienced a free press in this country. So what CBS did is they sent down their killer interviewer, Mike Wallace. And I want you to take a look at this interview because Jim Garris is, you know, he's suffered the slings and arrows of Cronkite and Rather. Now comes the real killer. So he is not prepared for how Mike Wallace is going to start this interview. I want you to listen to how brilliantly Jim Garrison phrases his responses and buries Mike Wallace. Could you play that clip for me, please, Doug? CBS then sent down very popular, no-nonsense, take-no-prisoners interviewer, Mike Wallace. Some journalists and others have charged that you have tried to bribe, to hypnotize, to drug witnesses in order to prove your case against Shaw. That's right. I understand that the latest uh, the latest news uh, by a New York Times writer is that we offered an ounce of heroin and uh, and three months vacation to one. As a matter of fact, this is part of our incentive program for convicts. Uh, we also have six weeks in the Bahamas. We're given some LSD to get there. Why doesn't Jim Garrison give his information if it is valid information? Why doesn't he give it to the federal government? Well, that would be one approach, Mike, or I could take my files and take them up on the Mississippi River Bridge and throw them in the river. It'd be about the same result. We have money passed with regard to the assassination of the President of the United States. We have individuals involved in the planning, and we can make the case completely. I can't make any more comments about the case except to say anybody that thinks it's just a theory is going to be awfully surprised when it comes to trial. That is evidence of the absolute intellectual and verbal brilliance of Jim Garrison. I'm telling you, if Patty Shaevsky or Shakespeare had time to write that or rewrite it, they couldn't have articulated it as well as Jim Garrison. Len, your thoughts on what you just saw? Well, um, you know, I never thought too much of Johnny Carson or, you know, Mike Wallace or Dan Rather, especially. So it was almost pointless to, to listen to these guys try to, to prop up some case against Jim Garrison. I was interested in what Jim Garrison had to say. So I listened to him whenever he spoke. Uh, luckily, he got a rebuttal, I think, from NBC uh, because of the really poor job they did. So um, are you talking he, about poor job? Actually, it was more more than a pure uh, a, a poor job yeah yeah uh, do you remember the producer who was assigned to literally go down to new orleans and destroy jim garrison's case sure. walter, uh, Sher- walter sheraton walter sheraton a cia yeah. and fbi asset he was ordered to literally destroy jim garrison's case so what does he do he goes down there and perry raymond russo is Another gay who was at the party when uh, Shaw was arrested, Perry Raymond Russo came forward uh, because he was at the gathering and he didn't want to be one of the guys convicted. He was just one of the gays who happened to be present there. So he came forward and told Jim Garrison about the meeting. Anyway, he also said he gets this call from Walter Sheridan. Walter Sheridan has a job for him in California at $50,000 a year to leave um, Jim Garrison's jurisdiction 
and uh, arranges to meet him at a motel in uh, Louisiana. And so Jim says to him, said, you don't, Perry, you don't have to, but would you mind wearing a wire? So Perry wore a wire. And what happens is you have Walter Sheridan, leading producer, on the orders from the FBI, the CIA, and the president of NBC to destroy Jim Garrison's case into the murder of John Kennedy. All criminal offenses. Now, it's all recorded. So Garrison goes to court and says, hey, I want equal time, blah, blah, blah. So at that time, there was a fairness doctrine, which Bill Clinton got rid of. And there was equal time, which Bill Clinton got rid of, as well as becoming the worst president in the United States. He's the one that signed the Communications Act that put all of our media into the hands of six corporations, all criminally controlled corporations by Project Mockingbird. So anyway, he is given a half hour late night on NBC to present his case about how the FBI, uh, how the CIA murdered President Kennedy. And no criminal charges were brought against Sheridan. NBC should have lost their license. I mean, that is just how god-awful, pathetic, and horrible, and corrupt this whole country is. I want to show what I think is the most important 20 or 30 seconds of Oliver Stone's movie regarding the shots fired by Lee Harvey Oswald. Could you play that clip, please, Doug? So you take this Carcano, world's worst shoulder weapon, and you try to hit a moving target at 88 yards through heavy foliage, no way. Yeah. The FBI tried two sets of tests. Not one of their sharpshooters could match Oswald's performance. Not one. That is staggering. That, to me, is the most important clip because it proves immediately Oswald's innocence. Any thoughts on that, Don? No, I mean, uh, when, when JFK was made, uh, you know, I had a general impression. I mean, I'd seen Platoon and War on the Fourth of July and Midnight, uh, Midnight uh, Express. That all, so I was familiar with Oliver Stone's work, but I knew how the left in Hollywood had treated the JFK assassination. They'd ignored it like the plague. So when he was going to make it, I just instantly assumed that it would, you know, he would somehow conclude that Oswald did it. I was shocked when I started to hear that, hey, wow, he's going to go for the truth here. And he had Jim Mars and Oliver Stone's book and everything. So that was, uh, boy, it really reinvigorated me because at that point I was really disillusioned. I wasn't doing a whole lot of assassination research because I just thought it was a dead issue. We were never going to, you know, they're just going to continue this cover up forever. But it really inspired me to see because Oliver Stone he put this out there like nothing else. JFK inspired young people. He he was on. He had Oprah talking about it. You know, he had so, everyone talking. Yeah. Let me tell you something about when it happened. Uh, it was 1991. He bought. He paid fifty thousand dollars for on the trail of the assassins to the Garrison family to Jim Garrison, and a percentage of the profits from the film. I had uh, that was 1991. In 19. 19- 81, when I had done my extensive interview with Jim Garrison, I finally got the opportunity to go on a network show. It was called Speak Up America, and in two parts, have Jim Garrison tell his own story about solving the murder of John Kennedy. 
that story was re-edited so badly and so crushed that it maligned Jim Garrison so criminally. I begged Jim Garrison to sue George Slaughter, who did the re-editing. George Slaughter re-edited to have the public believe Jim Garrison. He cut in when when uh, Marju Gortner asked Garrison how many uh, uh, shooters were there were in Dallas. George Slaughter cut in the word 32. So that meant he was totally maligning Garrison. And I, we had it. And 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 I, um, and uh, George Slaughter called me laughing about what he had done to uh, Jim Garrison. Now I'm the guy who was saving and created Real People, the number one show on American television. Okay, but I agreed to do this story for him on another show, and he is recorded. So I called Jim in New Orleans, and I'm literally crying. I'm crying. And I said, listen, I don't know how it happened. I don't know how it happened. But here are the tapes. You will sue NBC. You will get more than equal time. You will get millions and you will own George Slaughter. And he very calmly said, John, if I sued everyone who maligned me, I would never see my family. I would never be in my office. He said, just send me some real people T-shirts. That's the kind of person we want. So we sent him some large real people t-shirts and five for for his children and he sent us back a, a wonderful wonderful thank you now so when now 10 years pass and now i read that oliver stone oh my god now listen i am a monster fan of oliver stone for only one film and that is uh, the one el salvador you're familiar with the film James Wood's best film. It is the best political film ever made in America about America's intervention into El Salvador with the CIA. Wonderful, wonderful film. In order to film that, finish that film, Oliver Stone had to mortgage his own home, which he did. So now along comes 1981 and the news comes out. And I have three and a half hours of, uh, of this footage. And I call Oliver Stone's office and I said, listen, I have three and a half hours of the real Jim Garrison. It's not not Kevin Costner. I would like uh, to show this to Oliver. I would like him to executive produce a documentary called The Garrison Tapes that I would have creative control of because that's how Jim Garrison wants it. But he will be the executive producer and co-owner of it. He never answered me. He never answered me. And the reason I called You may recall at the time when it was announced that he was going to make JFK. Do you ever recall reading George Lardner Jr.'s attacks on him from the Washington Post? Sure. George Lardner Jr. was a CIA asset working for the Washington Post, and he called Oliver Stone Dallas in Wonderland. So since he's not going to help me, Jim Garrison is now on his deathbed in 1991. And so I have called Liz Garrison. Liz Garrison talked to me often because I only talked to Jim twice after I was fired from ABC. That was once when I did the Tonight Show with Sinatra and he called and asked for some of the jokes so they could use them. But the other time was during Watergate. And uh, we talked about Watergate and all the connections between Watergate and the Kennedy 
assassination and talked often to his daughter Elizabeth because that was the conduit to Jim. So Jim's now in his deathbed. And I call uh, Liz and she said, my father wants you to make his story. And he has asked us and the children to help you. So when can you come? And I said, well, I will come anytime. So I arranged to go to New Orleans. Now I get a call two days later from uh, Liz, Liz Garrison. And she said, we just got a call from somebody identified as Rosie in Oliver Stone's office. And they're saying, don't ever let John Barber get near a camera with Jim Garrison because he has a horrible reputation in America. Now, I don't know if that story is true. I don't know if Rosie is true or not, but that's what Liz Garrison said to me. And all I can remember ever saying about uh, Oliver Stone was something very popular. You, you mentioned the movie Midnight Express. Yep. Yeah, and he was really stoned when he was on <laughs> Midnight Express. And I said, in spite of that, Oliver Stone's script for Midnight Express deserves an Oscar. And guess what? He got an Oscar and, and deservedly for Midnight Express. So anyway, we got to go ahead and make uh, Jim Garrison's documentary. And it was called The Garrison Tapes. Now, I'm going to tell you something about I am an enormous, enormous monster fan of the artistry and the talent of an Oliver Stone when it comes to making a movie. Uh, JFK, Salvador, and some of the stuff he did on Showtime is brilliant. There are four things that I admire in human beings. They are intelligence, they are talent, they are wit, and they are character. Oliver Stone is enormously talented. He is a colossal intellect. Whether he has any wit or not, I don't know. But as far as character is concerned, he is not anybody I would like to know. And yet, when we conclude this, I will point out how he could be the only one, I think, could save America. And I'll tell you why I would never want to know Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone kept badgering Liz Garrison. He said, after the uh, film is released three or four years later, and after Barbara's thing is done, I want to still do a documentary about your father. And Liz Garrison said, well, he's dying. And he said, can we bring a camera to his house and record his dying thoughts on the CIA still being involved in the murder? And she said, no. And she said, no, Donald, over a dozen times. And she said he called every single day begging, please let us do this. And she relented. So Oliver went and it is on YouTube now. It was not to be shown until after Jim Garrison's death. It was on YouTube the very next week. Now, I don't know whether Oliver did it or I don't know if one of his associates did it, but it brought tears and rage to my eyes to see this magnificent man, Jim Garrison, who single-handedly went up against the United States government and proved that they had murdered John Kennedy deteriorating in front of my eyes. So I wrote something scathing, attacking Oliver Stone. Then I get a call a few weeks after that, and it's Liz Taylor laughing. She said, guess what? I said, what? 
She said, we've had to hire a lawyer to sue Oliver Stone for our share of the profits in JFK. So that became a man that I never wanted to know. So at that aside, let me say this. Oliver Stone's film, the greatest movie, most important ever movie ever made in America. I would not have my two definitive documentaries had it not been for Oliver Stone. But guess what? You have not seen Oliver. Everything that Stone was saying in his movie is supported in spades in both documentaries. You never hear one word from Oliver Stone. You never, and you know, on the 50th anniversary, I paid thousands of dollars to Dick Russell and to Joan Mellon to come to speak at the UNLV and show the garrison tapes and talk. And they were absolutely and totally, totally brilliant. They should have taken the act to off-Broadway. And yet not Dick Russell, not Joan Mellon, not one word about the American media and the second assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And what does Oliver Stone do? He plugs James Douglas's book, The Unspeakable, and makes James Douglas a millionaire. $25 for the book. You know how long it reads to take a reader book? It's even a good book. It's two weeks, two hours to look at a great movie. And never a word about that. And I wondered why on earth would he not plug the thing that supports what he's saying? And my wife said to me, well, don't you forget, honey, about eight years or so ago, you vilified him because he released the tapes of Garrison dying. Well, I don't know that that's true. But in any event, that's that's how I, I feel about that. So what I'm going to show you now is by far the greatest clip of facts ever assembled that absolutely and totally prove that the United States government murdered John Kennedy and were supported and protected by the entire media. So, Doug, could you play that clip about the media? Don't do this. All I did was love Nicole. All I did was love her. On June 12, 1994, super athlete and superstar O.J. Simpson was arrested for the murder of his wife, Nicole, and Ronald Goldman. Wikipedia said it's the most covered crime in American history. It ran on television for 139 days, on the front page of the LA Times for 300 days, covered by 2,237 news outlets. The amount of money spent on covering it by the media, $50 billion. The cost to the California taxpayers, approximately $10 million. The number of witnesses who died mysterious deaths or disappeared, zero. The number of reporters made media stars by covering O.J., nearly a dozen, including Greta Van Susteren and Nancy Grace, who were given their own crime shows. On December 26, 1996, six-year-old John Benet Ramsey, a little beauty queen, was found murdered in a Boulder, Colorado home. The subsequent investigation and speculation about the crime resulted in what Fox News called a media feeding frenzy. ABC, NBC, and CBS did featured stories on it 84 times. Barbara Walters fought and campaigned to get exclusive interviews with the father. Nancy Grace and other media stars every night vigorously pursued the killer or killers. It has become and continues to be America's most investigated unsolved murder. The cost of Colorado taxpayers, 
$1.5 million. Media expenses to cover it, $1.5 billion. The number of witnesses who died mysterious deaths or disappeared, zero. On December 19, 1998, President Bill Clinton was impeached by the Senate on two counts. One was for perjury, for lying under oath when he said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Everyone in America knows, even journalists, that fellatio is sex. For the media, this impeachment was more of a goldmine than O.J. or John Bonet. This was the President of the United States getting a blowjob. Monica Lewinsky's semen stained dress was waved about more in the media than Betsy Ross's flag. Barbara Walters and Nancy Grace and Greta Van Sustern and dozens of other bottom-feeding, celebrity-sucking truth-seekers every night were having on-air reporting orgasms. The hearings lasted for 40 days until Clinton was cleared and free to take a shower. The cost to the American taxpayers? $7 million. Money spent by the media covering it? Approximately $69 million. The number of mysterious deaths or missing witnesses? Zero. Unusual for the Clintons. On November 22, 1963, at almost high noon in Dallas, in a last-minute rewrite of unguarded limousine going barely 11 miles an hour, President John F. Kennedy had the back of his head blown away. It was the most horrific murder of a president in our history and our country's most dramatic change in foreign policy. The number of days investigated in public by the media or government? Zero. The amount of money spent by the media to investigate it? $8,000. Ramparts Magazine, Playboy Magazine, and the Los Angeles Free Press. The amount of money spent by the mainstream media and government to have it not investigated? $18 billion. The number of witnesses dying mysterious deaths or disappearing? According to the House Select Committee on Assassinations, 78. The number of American soldiers killed in the fake wars following JFK's murder, 68,750. The number of innocent Iraqis and Vietnamese and others killed, 3.5 million. The cost to the American taxpayers for these fake wars, $4,738,000,000,000. dollars. The number of American journalists made stars by investigating and covering this murder? Zero. The number of journalists and reporters made stars by not covering this murder and denigrating those who did scores and scores, beginning with an ordinary Dallas street reporter, Dan Rather. In the next instant, with this time Mrs. Kennedy apparently looking on, a second shot, the third total shot, hit the president's head. He, his head could be seen to move violently forward. The um, Zapruder film, if anybody looks at it carefully, shows that the president was hit from the front and the force throws him out. To, if he didn't have a seat behind him, he would have gone out the back about 30 feet. On November 22, 1963, not only did John Kennedy die, as we have seen and continue to experience, so did our hopes for world peace. 
The worst loss, though, the loss that could have corrected our foreign policy carnage, something that John Kennedy and millions of others like him fought for in World War II, November 22, 1963, is also the day America's free press died. You guys were talking earlier, especially uh, you, Len, about the fact that you were learning this information and that you were moving on to other things. But the truth is, when you have this kind of information, you have to have this kind of knowledge, the thing that must follow after that is somehow action. I, I have two quick stories that I want to tell about Jim Garrison, because, you know, as sad as the loss of John Kennedy is, I miss Jim Garrison more. And I miss him every day. I have a hard time even just looking at a still picture of him because I remember him so well, spending so much time with him. Do you know that he got to see the Garrison tapes a week before it was entered into the San Sebastian Film Festival in 92. And the day it won was the day he died. I was aboard American Airlines and the pilot came looking for me and said that they had gotten a call from my wife and said that they wanted to report to me that Jim Garrison had died. But I'm going to tell you, I called his daughter. I called his, I called his daughter Elizabeth and I was choking back about the fact, oh my God, her father died. And she said, John, I've got to tell you something about the last things my father did. And I said, what was that? And she said, well, you know, they had a very, very stormy marriage. And of course, it's impossible to hold a marriage together when every day you're trailed by the FBI and you're trailed by the CIA and they try to entrap you with sexual crimes and all kinds. She, she said it happened everywhere, Las Vegas to Los Angeles. It was just a horrible life. She couldn't take it anymore and she divorced him. And she said, you know, when a woman divorces, when she's had a very tough time, she is easy prey for the next guy. And my father was able to give her an enormous amount of money. His books were very successful. So she got to be quite rich. And she married a guy who spent it in a couple of years, went through all her money. So she was literally broke. And she said, my father was dying. And one day he called me in and he says, Liz, I want you to get the other four kids. I want you to get my friend, the minister, get a marriage license and get your mother to come over here. And I said, Dad, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to remarry your mother. So she said, that'll never happen. And he just said, get her over here. So they brought the wife over and they said, he's lying on his deathbed. The minister's there. They had the marriage license. And they all both had a sense of humor, even though she, they, he was dying. She, she says, how are we going to consummate this wedding? She says to him, and he says, you'll consummate it in the bank. So she didn't know what he was talking about. And he said, listen, I don't want to go into how tough you've had it, but I'm going to tell you this, Angel. You've been a fantastic, tolerant wife. You look at five great kids that we have. You're going to marry me. I am a judge with a very substantial pension. And when I die, you're going to live in my pension. And that's what she lived on until the day that he died. And a little later on, I'm going to tell you a more important story about Jim when he points out the person that gave the orders to Alan Dulles to pull the trigger. So I just wanted to get a couple of 
thoughts uh, about action. Do you remember a couple of years ago, Donald, meeting me and Brian Lloyd in Washington, D.C.? Oh, sure. One of the highlights of my life. Absolutely. Sure. Oh, well, bless your heart. Can you tell it? Tell us, tell the audience what the circumstances were of me and Brian. Brian Lloyd was a fellow that came out of the woodwork who, from the time he was a teenager, collected all the media and newspapers about John Kennedy. And when he was heard, I was making this movie, gave me boxes and boxes. He made major contribution and became my lawyer. And so we went to Washington, D.C., because we were going to go, mistakenly, I will tell you why, to the Justice Department, because it was a cold case at the Justice Department. I had put together, along with Brian Lloyd, a 10 most wanted poster. And leading off the poster was Dan Rather. Do you know that I offered, I've spent a half a million dollars making my films about Garrison. I'm never going to get it back. But I offered my last $25,000 with my wife's blessing to um, to uh, Dan Rather if he would come on the new documentary and answer one question. And that question was going to be, who was with you when you were looking at the Zapruder film before you broadcasted his head went for Of course, they turned us down. So uh, it, it, in any event, getting to the... Uh, oh, I, I have, oh, yeah, I, we went to... It was a press club, right? National Press Club, yeah, absolutely, yeah. We went there, and you you were going to, uh, you also were going to go to American University because uh, that's was the site of John F. Kennedy's, I think, the greatest speech by any president ever, his famous Pete speech. That's it. You're uh, absolutely. We, that, we did that also, and thank God right. you were there also. Now we had a standing room only at the press club, right? Right, and uh, also had lots of great uh, young people at the uh, American University as well. Yeah. yeah so was, now, what happens? is that myself and Brian announced that we're going to go to the next day with wanted poster to the Justice Department to present it to them because it's a cold case. So we thought maybe some of these young folks and these reporters would show up. It was just me and it was just Brian. So the, And Brian fortunately had his phone so he was able to take the pictures of me doing that. But you want to know something? I made a dreadful mistake. 20 years, because for 20 years, I've been telling the people, listen, it's a cold case at the Justice Department. But when you're trying to listen, not even the president of the United States, when Congress says we have to release the CIA files, not even the president will cave in. They all cave in to the Justice Department and the CIA saying you can't release the file. Last year, I was fortunate enough to be a speaker at CAPA, invited by Dr. Sirouet. I love that man dearly because, as, as, uh, as uh, Leno Sanek has pointed out constantly, he is the one constant in the history of the Rwandry Court that called the magic bullet theory absolute and total bullshit, and he still does. And he's going to be 90 years of age this year. And we were live on, on the air, and I asked him if... He would march with uh, people to uh, celebrate his 90th birthday, November 22nd, 2022, and hear 15 to 20,000 people singing happy birthday to him. And he said, unfortunately, he had to decline. But I can understand not confronting the Justice Department because people get shot, people get murdered. And that's where I have made 
my dreadful, dreadful mistake and spending time saying, go to the Justice Department. We can do it safely without that. And you know how we do that, Donald? And you know how we do that, Len? We do it by getting a free press. And we can get a free press a lot easier than you can imagine. Can I speak for a minute about what a free press was really like? Len, you're, in, you're from Canada. Are you old enough to remember a guy named Father Coughlin? No. You had no idea who he was? No. Okay, uh, Donald, do you know? Who, I think you might know. You're a little older than Len. Who yeah, probably... well, I, I wasn't around when he was there, but yeah, I, I know I've, I've written about him. and I, I'm very much aware of these. He was the famous radio priest. Uh, can you tell us what kind of broadcast he did, or do you want me to do it? I'm Listen, <laughs> it, it was 1939. Yeah, I'm yeah, six yeah. years of age. Now, what am I listening to? I'm listening to Bob Hope, and I'm listening to Jack <laughs> Benny, and I'm listening to Hermit's Cave, and I'm listening to The Shadow, and I'm listening to Father Coughlin. Well, who is Father Coughlin? He was the first Alex Jones. <laughs> he had the most popular radio show in the United States in 1939. And what did he do? He harangued against all those Jews and all those blacks. Yeah. Yeah. That's how he spent the entire half hour. And I was spellbound listening because it was almost entertaining. Now, it ends in 1940-41 because America goes to war and he's gone and he's totally forgotten. But as somebody who listened to him for a year and loved listening to him, I never grew up hating one Jew or one black, but I grew up recognizing and hating every Father Coughlin I ever ran across. And every president of the United States, except President John Kennedy and Jimmy Carter have all been Father Coughlin's. And I'm telling you, a lot of them should be arrested. Now, I said the justice has disappeared. Quick story about John Kennedy. It's 1962, and America's on the verge of another recession, and all of the steel companies in Pittsburgh announced they're going to raise the prices. And John Kennedy sends him a note and asks him, please, don't do that. And then the spokesperson, the head CEO, goes on television and says, we are raising the prices. He says it publicly. He gets a phone call when he gets back to the office and said, and it's John Kennedy on the phone. And he says, you do that. And we are going to nationalize every steel company in America. So they never raise the prices. Now, what it happens when you nationalize? That's socialism, isn't it? Do you know the most influential, to me, the most influential political politicians in this country over the last hundred years, with the exception of maybe John Kennedy, have all been socialists. Eugene Debs, who was opposed to the war, led the Socialist Party for years. Norman Thomas, four times was a presidential candidate for the Socialist Party. And then Henry Wallace, who became vice president of the United States, he was a leading progressive. Now, what happens is America collapses and gets what they do. They take they take everything that's been on the socialist platform for 30 years, which was uh, eight-hour workdays. It was Social Security. They were introducing Medicare that didn't happen for a while. And it was child labor laws. 
and Henry Wallace, the progressive socialists, forced FDR to pass those into law to save capitalism. Now, I play golf with 20 guys who are mega millionaires, half of them are over 60, and they're always calling Biden a lefty or a socialist. And they're all living off of Social Security, was instituted in this country by socialists. Now, I know your favorite politician was not one of these guys. It was? Huey Long. Tell us why. Well, I mean, Huey Long is the only politician in, in American history that literally promised people uh, something and gave them something. All the other politicians asked sacrifice. American Piper, he said, no, you deserve this. And he did it. He actually, uh, if you look at what he did as governor of Louisiana, he gave them tangible things where they saved uh, their cost of living. Was, at, at the time, was like a, a couple hundred dollars a month, which is huge and significant, not to mention the infrastructure upgrades and everything. And, and he, he was... Uh, there's nobody close. I mean, I love JFK. I love the Kennedys, but Huey Long is is my number one man. He was assassinated. Do you think it was a political assassination or a personal killing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he 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 accused the Roosevelt administration, the government, of plotting to kill him. It's still you can still read it in the Senate record. He was the minutes of the Senate. He was. I mean, no other senator has ever done that. They're plotting to kill me, and and that was about a month before. He died absolutely. They Roosevelt are was calling him the uh, one of the two most dangerous men in America, along with uh, Douglas MacArthur, I think. And uh, they feared him greatly. And uh, this guy had the, the Share Our Wealth Society. He, I think, they had twelve million members already. That's they, right. Sweeping you know, the rest of the country. The same thing happened to Hale Boggs. Hale Boggs was a congressman who was the only dissenting member of the Warren Commission, and he accidentally met. Jim Garrison, and he just says, I'm a shooter, and there's no way with that old man of the car counter, you could even hit a dead rabbit. Mm-hmm. And and so Jim Garrison went out and got three sets of the Warren Report. Now, when they were about to publish the Warren Report, you remember what Alan Dulles said? Because nobody, it, will, nobody will read it. Nobody that's reads. right. He <laughs> said, nobody <laughs> will read it. And Jim Garrison said, well, some of us do. And he got three sets of them. He had one of them in his office, one in his car, and one at home. And he uh, absolutely memorized it and became really close friends with Hale Boggs. Hale Boggs went before the Senate and Congress and demanded that a new investigation be conducted into the murder of John Kennedy. And I think even Martin Luther King, for crying out loud. And he said... And we have to dismantle, that was his word, the FBI and the power of J. Edgar Hoover. And guess what happens to Hale Boggs? He gets driven to the airport by a young Bill Clinton, put on a biplane that disappears over Alaska, and that's the last you ever hear of Hale Boggs or that airplane. And the other thing about Jim Garrison that was just so astonishing, other than his sense of humor is when he asked me to shut down the camera he said listen and he talked about executive action he talked about will gear and he says i'm going to tell you who will gear is he says there is no question that uh, the architect the one who designed the killing of john kennedy is of course alan dulles but he said you know alan dulles even though they're mega millionaires, John, 
they're only hirelings. And I said, well, how can you call the Dulles people? I mean, hirelings. He said, listen, they were employees. They were assigned to be head of the Central Intelligence Agency. And that's the hit squad for all the corporations in the United States, okay? And he heads up that particular hit, hit squad. And, you know, even during the Second World War, wasn't it uh, IBM that supplied the... Uh, the computers to Adolf Hitler's Germany so that they could keep track of the numbers that they were putting on Jews' arms and Standard Oil was still supplying them. I mean, it's so monumentally corrupt. But he says, John, they all take orders from the handful of people who actually own the country. He said, look, we elect. We don't select. John, it's the handful of the owners of the country that select. We are forced to elect, and as George Carlin said, they belong to a club to which we are not members, okay? So is it even vote is, is an absolute waste of time? He said this back in 1981. He said, but he said, there is one guy who I think, I can't prove it, he said, who was the one who gave the direction to Alan Dulles to shoot John Kennedy, and I'll try to show you why. Now, what I would like you to do, Doug, now is show the audience the picture of Alan Dulles with John Kennedy, if you have it handy. Ah, thank you very, very much. Well, you see Avril Harriman, he's 71 years of age there, and he's assigned to be the eyes for the CIA and the military into John Kennedy's White House. At the time, there were 12,000 advisors put into Vietnam. They were put there by Dwight D. Eisenhower. In October of 1963, John Kennedy sits outside with Walter Cronkite, and he said, there will be no more advisors in Vietnam. I'm going to withdraw a thousand a month until the 1964 election. There will be no Americans ever fighting Vietnam. We will send them arms and supplies, but it is their total war. And he said the strongest supporter of Eisenhower and all his advisors was the guy known as the Crocodile. And that is billionaire Avril Harriman. And this is what Avril Harriman did, is Avril Harriman sent a memo to Henry Cabot Lodge in Vietnam, in South Vietnam, with instructions to murder Diem, who is John Kennedy's closest friend in Vietnam and would unlikely stay as Prime Minister or Premier of South Vietnam. And he is murdered 23 days before they murdered John Kennedy. And Jim Garrison produces this memo which is memorialized in Wikipedia. Doug, do you have that memo handy? For 243, and what it is, it is actually Avril Harriman in print instructing Cabot Lodge to do that. It is sent over the... John Kennedy didn't even know it was being sent. Robert Kennedy didn't even know it was being sent. But after GM was murdered... Bobby Kennedy stumbled across the memo because now it was public. 
It was public what Harriman had had the balls to do so brazenly. Bobby Kennedy almost got into a fist fight with Avril Harriman. And Harriman got so pissed at Bobby Kennedy, he went to the New York Times and said, you know, these Kennedy brothers, they're both nuts. And that's an actual quote from Avril Harriman. And then on November 22nd, they shoot John down John Kennedy. Now, there was a time when it looked like the House Select Committee on Assassinations might be a winner. Can you remember, uh, Len, the first appointee to be the investigator at the House Select Committee? Sprague? Huh? Richard Sprague? That's right, Richard Sprague. Tell the audience who Richard Sprague was. Uh, you're better to do that. Okay, Richard Sprague was a tough investigator and a lawyer in Philadelphia who sent a lot of teamsters and a lot of politicians to jail. And he was appointed to head up the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And in our documentary, The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, this is what Richard Sprague actually says. He said, we have a staff of six. Not one of our employees or our detectives or researchers is with the FBI or the CIA because they are the ones this six is going to investigate. And immediately, the 400 assets of the CIA in the media, in the Senate, in the Congress, all ganged up on Richard Sprague, and he talks on camera about how he went up against the CIA and they they got rid of him. And they brought in that hack, G. Robert Blakey, who did what they all do, they blame the mafia. And I said from the very beginning, I listen, if the mafia shot the Kennedys, there wouldn't be a pizza parlor in America, for God's sake. They were just all hireling. So it is ridiculous to try to take on any government legal organization, be it the FBI, be it the, any DA. And there are no Jim Garrisons in America anymore. But we do have one thing and one thing only that you're safe to protest against. And I'm sorry, I never thought of it sooner. And I wouldn't know how to organize it. But I'll tell you, I think there's only one person in the United States who can literally save this country. It's going to sound bizarre coming from me, but that is Oliver Stone. And I'm going to tell you why. You can stand in front of the White House and demand that Donald Trump or Joe Biden sign an executive order reversing the Communications Act. Each one of these six companies is a criminal monopoly. A lot of you won't remember this because you're not old enough. Oh, my God. But I remember it all. It was back in the 60s and 70s when the government was trying to dismantle AT&T, American Telephone and Telegraph, the largest telephone company in the world. And they were spending millions saying, you're not going to dismantle us because you will destroy communications in the modern world. And the government said, hey, You are a monopoly and you will disband. And they disbanded. And guess what? We now have 12 
really excellent communications telephone countries in the world. I mentioned earlier that uh, Clear Channel has 1,300 radio stations in this country. That is not a free press. That's a monopoly. When John Kennedy was alive in 1963, you could only own five radio stations or five television stations or five newspapers in, in only five cities in America. That all disappeared because of the worst president in American history, Bill Clinton. Now, you heard for months and months and years Donald Trump regaling against the fake news. And he could have easily gotten rid of the fake news by picking up his pen, signing an executive order, and he never did. And you know why he never did? It is so patently obvious because he knows that we know that the American press is absolutely a bunch of bullshit. And he knows that if we hate the press and he is going to be a presidential candidate who also hates the press, who are we going to go vote for? We're going to vote for the guy that says he hates the press the most and it becomes Donald Trump. So what Trump was in essence, he was using the fake press, the same way the Nazis used the Jews in the 30s and the same way we used the commies in the 50s. It's all a power ploy to become the leader and the president of the United States. We are in god-awful, just dreadful shape. So in any event, it was April Harriman, according to Jim, and that memo, we'll show you the post of the memo, who went to Alan Dulles and said, you can go ahead and now murder the son of a bitch. And they did. One brief story. George Elkins was a cameraman on my show for the uh, first Garrison tapes. George Elkins, like myself, had no father for 20 years, but his father never left. They just never saw him. For 20 years, his father was second in head, head of intelligence in Vietnam. He happened to accidentally see the movie, The Garrison Tapes, at a sold-out audience in Santa Monica. And he called his son after years and congratulated his son on the film. And he said, son, do you think John will talk to me? Would he meet me at Patty's Restaurant in Toluca Lake? I have a couple of stories to tell him about the assassination. So George rushes to my house and said, will you meet my dad? I said, yeah, I'll meet. Are you kidding? So I go to meet him, tall, good-looking guy. You could tell he's military, close-cropped hair. The first thing he did is he apologized to me for bringing me there. He said, John, I've just retired. I did call my son, and I asked him to come here. I didn't quite confess it, but I was second in charge of intelligence in Vietnam for almost 20 years, and that's why I never saw my family, because I was fighting for my country. He said, but I can tell you just one thing about the assassination of John Kennedy, then I'm going to leave you and I'm going to be gone. And he said, during the Bay of Pigs, uh, he said, every single agency that was a criminal agency or a spy agency in the United States was in Miami. And they were in a massive they were in a massive war room. It's like Dr. Strangelove, okay? This big war room. And what they had on the wall 
was a map of the city of Havana. And every one of us was going around pointing at the map, telling everybody where we were going to have our office. And this is while the Bay of Pigs is going on. And there are probably 40 or 50 of us there, you know, some in suits and some in uniform. And all of a sudden we start getting the news that things are not going so well at the Bay of Pigs. And we hear that the CIA is now calling upon the president of the United States to send in air support. So we figured, oh, thank God we're going to have air support. We're going to get our offices. And guess what? It come back that John Kennedy denies air support to our troops at the Bay of Pigs. He said there wasn't one man in that office that didn't train that fucking son of a bitch. And Jim Garrison, in conversations with me, when I said, Mr. Garrison, when on earth did they start planning this nonsense? He said it was the day he failed air support at the Bay of Pigs. They began that instant, that instant, to plan his murder. Now, I have had people all, God, forever saying, John, look into 911, look into Bobby Kennedy, look into Martin Luther King, look into all kinds of other things. The answer is no, 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 no. You know why? Everything hinges upon the murder of John Kennedy. Now, I'm going to tell you finally how radical I am, because I have a lot of people saying, what would you do, John, if you were president of the United States to fix America? Well, first thing, I'd do two things. The very first thing is I would restore the free press. Because when you get a free press, you may get a lot of Father Coglins, but you're also going to get a lot of Leno Sanix, and you're going to get a lot of Donald Jeffries, and you're going to get a lot of brilliant reporters who are going around tell you tell the truth of what's going on. So you should... Anybody should be allowed to say anything that does not involve the harm to any other human being. I do not think any corporation or any human should have either physical or financial control over another human. And 95% of every American is a debt slave. That's That's a couple of million people in this country are debt slaves. They are owned by somebody, somebody else. So in any event, The other thing that I do, I'm telling you, this is how radical I feel sometimes if I were president. The Bush family, George Bush, openly and admittedly lied us into Iraq. He destroyed an ancient 5,000-year-old civilization, murdered millions of people, including hundreds of thousands of our own boys, 18 of whom commit suicide every single day. You know what I would do if I were president of the United States? I would confiscate 99% of the Bush wealth and let him live on Walmart wages like some of the rest of us. And I would distribute it amongst the victims in this country in Iraq of that man's lies. I would also do the same with the Lyndon Johnson family. You do not know how corrupt that family is. They lied us into Vietnam. You take over 99% of their funds and you distribute it amongst the poor. You cancel all student loans. You do a lot of good things with it. That is what I do. And the other thing that I would do, there is no statute of limitations on murder. I have always felt that Bill Clinton is responsible for the murder of 87 women and children at a Christian compound in Waco, Texas. Do you know how easy it is to surround these people with tanks and just starve them out? 
instead of burn them out. And I would see if it would be possible to bring charges of murder against Bill Clinton. That's how devoid of justice we are in America. Justice and a free press in this country have gone the way of Bruce Jenner's testicles and they are never coming back. And Uncle Sam needs an enema. And that enema can only happen with people understanding the truth about the country in which they live in. Now for this little bit of hope. I think the one person that could save and change America is Oliver Stone. If I were a close, close friend of Oliver's and had any influence, I would say, Oliver, you are one of the brightest, most talented man, men in this country. You are the one that brought to attention the murder of John Kennedy. You have been fighting from the outside and it has done you no good. As a matter of fact, your documentary, your new documentary is meaningless. Not only don't you mention Garrison, you don't mention a way to fight it, but this is how you could fight it. Give up trying to fight it from the outside and fight it from the inside. Being as bright as you are and as smart as you are, you announce that you're going to run for Congress or Senate in the state of California. And you only have two things on your platform. And that platform is you're going to sign an executive order restoring a free press to the United States of America. That's your first order of business. And your second order of business, you will see from the inside, you will introduce legislation forcing the government and the Senate and the Congress to release all the CIA files. Now, I'm telling you, I don't know if even Oliver would consider this. I mean, he's probably in enough trouble already, and maybe a lot of other people are shooting at him. I would bet every single penny that I have, if he ran for Senate or Congress in the state of California on that platform alone, he would get the largest victory of any politicians who ever ran in this country in 100 years, because we all know deep down how right Oliver Stone was in his film and how right Jim Garrison was. So as Hamlet would say, that is a consummation devoutly to be wished. Len, I cannot thank you enough for being here. Your enormous work, oh my God, it is incredible. Please send me again that interview with the author of The Parallax View. I want to share it. And Donald, thank you, thank you so much. And I hope you have a little better luck in dealing with the authorities about the passing of your brother. And I guess I have to say to both of you, God bless you. Thank you, John. Again, thank you, thank you so much for watching these two hours, which I think were the most two, uh, most important two hours that we've done so far in this show. And so for yourself and for your family and for history, I would suggest that you go to Amazon and for only $2, you can acquire forever the Citizen Kane of all JFK documentaries. It is called The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. We will see you again in two weeks with another Talking Movies. And till then, the very best of luck to you.